Queen's Park Rangers changed their kit, Steve. That is a tremendous top, but I don't remember seeing it down Loftus Road it's, recently. Uh, <laughs> it is not Queen's Park Rangers. It's a different oh. sort of Rangers. There's another Rangers. There is more than one Rangers, yes. Are they from New York? It is the New York variety of the Rangers. It could be slightly bigger, that top, though, couldn't it? No, I think you'll find that's an extra small. Is it? Mm. Yeah. So you can get your shoulder pads in for your commentary work. Chinch, it's all about the fit. Is it? Yeah, it's all about the fit. When you when you are an ice hockeyer, because that's the oh, correct uh, uh, vernacular, I think you find. When you're an ice hockeyer, yeah. you have several layers underneath your item of clothing, which identifies you as a player for that team. So therefore, an extra small is actually Michelin man-sized. Yeah, but when you're sat in your own kitchen, you don't need extra layers underneath your massive ice hockey shirt, do you? Just in case, what, someone comes and slams you up against the window? I'll be honest, it is a bit showy. Inviting you round, Chinch, <laughs> that is always a possibility. It's, I just love it. You answered the door in it, I was blown away. Did you think he would just, he'd just come out of, like, bed? And he was wearing oversized pyjamas. He looked like he had a duvet on with rangers Were you on worried about the fact that you, because you couldn't see below his waist, he might be wearing a onesie? <laughs> <laughs> or no trousers. I once bought Chinch a furry onesie as a joke present. What did you do with that, Chinch? I wore it. Did you actually wear it? Why wouldn't I? As a joke? Seriously? Yes, because you had bought me a, a, a joke present. It was a no, tit for tat no, joke prob- present. I probably didn't. It was probably a well-intentioned present that I think you took was, as a joke. I think w- it was when Gemma and I got engaged. Yeah, You bought us an engagement present, which is incredibly kind of you. Yeah. But it might have been mocking the very institution of marriage or something something subversive what like that. What was it? You can't just... I can't remember. But so I decided for your birthday, because the birthday followed about a week later, to mm. buy you a, <laughs> a very, I would imagine, warm and sweat-inducing fluffy onesie. Really? Much like... What Steve's wearing now. Yes, I did wear it. I've worn my Boca Juniors t-shirt with pride. When they lost. And pa- four people asked me, what does that stand for? And I explained what it stood for. It means cabbage. And then they lost, <laughs> didn't they, to, uh, to, to River, River Plate, Plate. whose t-shirt I wore with pride on yeah. the wrong day, but it still didn't matter. I, I didn't wear my Boca or River t-shirt because I, I you, got a you, Diego you, Maradona one instead. <laughs> You've been wearing that for the last four days, by the looks. I wonder what we're getting from Madrid, <laughs> by the way. Rory's, Rory's en route. Oh. I wonder what he's going to bring us. Yes. Ooh. Anything you ask for, Tinge? Um, I never ask for anything. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. And our setting today is an extraordinary one. We are in the new kitchen of Stephen Wyeth and family. And he celebrates Hurrah. with his arms in the air as if he has thrust the puck into the back of the goal net, mm. um, which has been tended by the tender. Um, and Steve, perhaps as the uh, the creative designer behind this, and obviously not having uh, your girlfriend Katie at all involved in the, the, the process, would you like to describe the changes that have happened in this room, bearing in mind we're an audio medium and that your job is to paint pictures with words? Oh, the mind of a man created this. No, oh, of course it did. Oh, I've got my hopes up there. Not. It's all Katie. Every Katie. single nook and cranny. <laughs> Katie sat down with an architect and basically I've been, or have had as little involvement really. You've just as, been mithering both possible. ever since. Yeah. I've kept myself busy doing other things. It's great to be able to welcome mm. you back. First time here in six months. Basically, Chinch, what we've done is we've knocked down the back of the house. We've changed the shape of it. It now goes out a little bit further to one side, not quite as far out of the back. So, And we've knocked down loads of walls internally. So it's all open plan, very yeah. airy, lots of glass, skylight. And then a bit more space outside for the kids to play. I'm, I'm a big believer in girth is much more important than length. In <coughs> kitchens. <coughs> oh, yeah, we do have a huge kitchen. It's now beautiful. As well. it, is, it blew my mind. I know my mind is fairly tiny, but this kitchen 
It's not just a kitchen, though. It's more than a kitchen. It's, than a kitchen. it's three rooms in one. And when we've got it's the, extraordinary. When we've got the appropriate number of chairs or stools, then we we can maybe pod around the breakfast bar. Oh, that would be just how good would that the, be? The one thing I've craved in my adult life that I've never been able to achieve is a breakfast bar. And Stephen, underneath my nose, has provided his family with a breakfast bar. We, we both have breakfast bars. Yes, you have we? a breakfast bar. Does Rory bar have too. a breakfast bar? Rory doesn't have a breakfast bar, no. Mm. But he does also have three rooms in one, so yeah. he, he achieves on so many levels. I, I do feel, with having the breakfast bar, Stephen, that we are slightly elevated in terms of the the people bit. in the pod. I, I do feel slightly In pod slightly. society. But your, but mine, is not as sizable. I have a decent breakfast bar. You could have eight people around your breakfast bar. It is you're enormous. Making, you're making it sound a little bit more grandiose perhaps than it is. It's like those... Didn't you exaggerate It's like again. those kitchens you see in cribs, isn't it? <laughs> Where you have like a cinema room and a basketball court. This is this is an American breakfast bar. It's hugely... I love it. It's I really need good. Steve to do uh, an episode of uh, Cribs but only involving his kitchen and just <laughs> permanently turning around the corner and saying, come with me, come with me. Oh, it's the kitchen again. SPM uh, Cribs. <laughs> SPM unfortunately, Cribs unfortunately, the contents of the fridge is nowhere near up to the required standard. <laughs> uh, it's currently empty. Uh, with me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, the owner of a new kitchen, and Andy Hinchcliffe, still arguing with IKEA Portugal over the installation of a new kitchen. How are you going, going with that? It, well, we had to bypass uh, Joao, the kitchen fitter, because... The kitchen fitter the is also... Major, there's on, lots of people called Joao in Portugal. <laughs> no, you're it's just... very similar to John, apparently. Oh, is that right? Yes. Just but anyway, the, the problem with Joao, the kitchen fitter, is I feel he'd never fitted a kitchen before. <laughs> I've got a feeling he was a road sweeper who had been given a glue gun and a saw and been told to go and fit our kitchen. And we had to basically say, forget it. We took everything back and we got Ted the Builder to sort it out for us. Ted is another famously Portuguese yeah. name. Uh, we were unable to coordinate our diaries with Rory Smith, um, as Steve uh, alluded to a moment ago. Essentially, Rory's diary has read over the last couple of weeks, Copa Buenos Aires, Copa Buenos Aires, Copa Madrid, Copa Madrid. Um, so we've been unable to, to slip ourselves in between uh, those two. Uh, the food, in his absence, he'll be very jealous. We um, provided, Steve provided to, to me because Chinch apparently doesn't like to snack between meals, um, even though his mouth is full of a sticky toffee cookie. <laughs> And provided bagels with scrambled eggs, which I sullied with tomato ketchup, um, Mm. which is something that Steve basically, that's the first thing I've eaten in his kitchen. And I feel like I've ruined my relationship with this room forever. I I finally cooked for him again for the first time in six months. Yeah. And he immediately demands ketchup. Dows the thing in it. That's like, that's enough to bring the chef out of the kitchen in a rage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, with a ladle clang to on the say, back of his head. Well done. Those two uh, tastes complement each other perfectly. Mm. Uh, you can get in touch with the pod. Of course you can. Via at setpiecemenu on Twitter, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Our conversation continues on Facebook. Just search setpiecemenu. We start our correspondence uh, with th- this, deliberately saved for a moment without Rory. And it comes from Robbie Wells. Hi, Steve. Loving the pod as always, still providing excellent time-improved media content as an antonym for Rory's TDMC, time-decayed media content. Very clever, Mm. very clever. It struck me as Rory worked up his bile for possession-based stats with an expletive uh, in an episode a couple of weeks ago that he embodies his argument through this pod every single week. Whilst he accounts for approximately 65 to 70% of the entire microphone possession on the pod, it is usually Steve, with his modest 5%, not including background chewing audio, that so regularly cuts (laughs) to the crux of the matter, thereby winning the pod. So yes, Rory, possession stats are indeed bull****. So 
Rory really is like Reading in the Championship last season. Lots of the ball, did nothing with it. Steve's like Leicester. I don't want the ball, but when I have it, I am going to give you problems. P.S. I do love Rory and his meanderings. Uh, keep up the good work, guys. All the best, says Robbie Wells. Um, our ongoing subjects of conversation include tribalism versus truth and sliding doors moments. So thank you uh, to all those who have sent uh, on one of those two subjects. Here's one of each, just for now. Alex Barilaro is yet another SPMer from Melbourne. And he says this, to Rory, Steve, Hugh and the man with the mystical left foot. In regards of your discussion about refereeing and tribalism, especially VAR, which is one of the episodes that Chinch couldn't be with us for, so this will all be news to him, it should feasibly, he says, make the final Premier League table clearer should uh, VAR be brought in. I think it was Pep that said that football is a game clouded in chaos, although that could well have come from a Rory Smith piece, uh, and referees getting help from technology in the clear and obvious errors remit would help stop that chaos from becoming excuses for fans of clubs looking to constantly defend their teams. For example, Liverpool's ridiculous stretch of home games in which they haven't been awarded a penalty is quite striking, and yet they've barely dropped points at home in the last 12 months. So it won't stop fans who will continue to mention that Liverpool aren't awarded penalties, even if it's true. As a Liverpool fan, he says, I'm inclined to believe it is. VAR will remove the conjecture from that, says Alex. It will also entrench fans in their tribalism, but it should give them less of a leg to stand on. So they'll argue, but they won't have a very good argument. Your podcast is superb, says Alex, even if capitalism hinders you from getting recognition in award ceremonies, um, <laughs> which is probably the reason why nothing to do with anything else. Yeah, I think fans will always complain and always say, well, the referee was wrong, VAR was wrong. That's, that's always going to carry on. But what VAR should give us is a fair reflection of the game and a fair reflection of the season. Because I, I do feel it will make a, a huge difference. Yes, there will be problems. There are grey areas still. But the vast majority of cases, it will be hugely but, and it will give us, again, a fair reflection of the game that we're actually watching. Yeah, I think they... they have rec- broken Steve's kitchen? Either. I don't know. I th- I, something's, something's clattered to the floor. No, it's okay. <laughs> That's okay. We've still got yeah, builders okay. coming in and out, yeah. so as, things as, can as get As long fixed. as it's not the stools of the breakfast bar, because that no. is the most important feature. Steve, you were going to say I before just, Chinch ruined your kitchen. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think they, they feel as though VAR means that referees are now able to get about 98% of decisions satisfactorily correct, which is an improvement from sort of... 93, 94% yeah. without it. So any any improvement in that regard, yes, should mean that there are fewer arguments. I mentioned to you guys before we started, I did see an incident in the Bundesliga at the weekend where a what looked like it might have been a penalty was waved away on the field by the referee. When you saw the incident again on a replay, you thought he is definitely going to get called over by VAR to have a look at that again. And the video assistant referee did not intervene, which was a surprise. So you do still get matters that get overlooked or perhaps interpretation is a little bit different from game to game. But as a general rule, it has improved things. A lot of people supporting Rory's offside rant yeah. from one of those two episodes that, Ken Chinch, uh, you couldn't make. But perhaps we'll wait for him to return to hear those because we don't want somebody to I not be know here, the, miss stuff. and then you know, I do know the crux know. of the... I th- we, we did kind of reprise <laughs> we what it said. So I, I was a big, a big fan. Big yes, fan. and we'll reprise yeah. it again yeah. uh, when Rory returns. Uh, meanwhile, Andrew Ashton has a sliding doors moment. This is uh, one of the moments in football history that perhaps if it had gone slightly different to the way it went, it would have changed football notably. Uh, Andrew suggests, after the 1990 World Cup, the FA met to appoint Bobby Robson's successor. The selection panel, it is said, narrowed the choice down to two candidates. They opted for Graham Taylor. Long ball advocate, no league titles or FA Cup wins as a manager, mediocre playing career. What if they had instead appointed the other candidate who was younger and more experienced? Howard Kendall was only 44. (laughs) That's four years younger than Gareth Southgate is now. 
He had won a European trophy, two league titles, and an FA Cup as a manager whilst creating the finest football team in Europe in 1985. That's 1985, not 1995. The Everton of 1995 was not nearly as good as the Everton of 1985. He had managed abroad. That was a very large aside from me. He had managed abroad at Bilbao, and as a player, he was a league champion and widely regarded as the best player never to be capped by England. Had he got the job, though, would all four SPMers have the same number of England caps? I think he's diminishing your achievements slightly there. Kendall was, he goes on to say, goes on to finish, says Andrew my boyhood hero which is a way of suggesting Chinch that you'd be very careful what you say next many people know that in 1964 he became the youngest player to appear in an FA Cup final when he played for Preston against West Ham however had Manchester United beat to West Ham in the semi-final that year the honour would have been shared as Kendall and George Best were both born on the same day the wow. 22nd of May 1946 a great day for football and licensed Vittlers, he says. Uh, Vittler <laughs> is, if you don't know, because I had to look it up, uh, a hostelry owner. Yes, I do know that. I'm not an idiot. No, I was doing it for everybody uh, else. Have I been? <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. So yes, okay. Like, Howard I, Kendall, I, I, I don't idiot. think with Howard Kendall, I have never really, do I seem, I'm not bitter. Because everybody has their opinion. And Howard Kendall's opinion of me being a terrible footballer is, again, I had to base it on what he'd achieved. And he knew his stuff. So I didn't, I've never had a problem with that. Do I strike you as someone who is bitter about that or run mm-hmm. Howard Kendall down. some great stories about Howard Kendall but that Brian Clough and Howard Kendall as England manager are probably two of the great unknowns what if these guys had te- Howard would have made a brilliant England manager he was a brilliant club manager as you say his experience and everything else players did love playing for him I found it slightly tricky along with other players as well but as an England coach I feel he could have done a brilliant job setpiecemenu at gmail.com at setpiecemenu or facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu our conversation today was actually prompted nay demanded by Rory Smith mainly because he wanted to listen to it play out so he's got his wish Uh, he wanted to know more about the art of commentary now we've done an episode before about the anatomy of a pundit with our esteemed high profile pundit so this week we wanted to tap into the deep resources of an internationally known and globally celebrated commentator or play by play announcer as they call it in the states to do the same Turns out, none of them were available. Yeah, so who have we, we turned to? Well, I heard that Martin Tyler, for example, is still propping up the bar at the FSF Awards after winning in his category. He won yeah. in his category. Regaling those who have lasted this long with stories about he and nobody else discovered Andy Hinchcliffe. We do, however, have Match of the Day and BT Sports' Stephen Steve Wyeth. can do it! But Stephen yeah. bashfully felt that he didn't want to position himself as an internationally known, globally celebrated commentator, but more of a person who likes to listen to them and copy them a bit sometimes. So it is with that in mind that we thought that we'd open the subject up to you, our fine listeners, as we have done over the last few days, who have been offering up questions and points for us to discuss, clear up, shed light upon, and much to Robbie Wells' disgust and his pod possession-based theory, Steve is going to have to do 65 to 70%. See, Steve is undervaluing his talents massively here. You are very humble, Stephen. You are very modest. You are brilliant at what you do. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. You're this too is far away fir- to hug, but I would hug you if it was possible. <laughs> it's the first I'm hearing of it, Jim. So I, no one, your bosses have never told you how great you are. I mean, I'll, you ha- you're I'll in check the my, perfect I'll, position to tell us. Email? I'm just checking my email. In, no, no, no nothing update. in there. No, no, there's nothing nope. fresh. You're in the perfect position to tell us what this commentary lark is all about. Well, first of all, we had a lot of uh, questions and comments and we appreciate them all. Thank you very much indeed. They flooded in. We had a lot on punditry. Um, so we're going to put those to one side because we've spoken to Chinch about punditry. Um, and if something comes up from our commentary discussion, which Chinch is going to chime in on, which of course he will, mm. uh, then we'll shed light on that um, too. Our, our first question uh, comes from a caller. Uh, so uh, pray silence 
for caller number one. Hello, my name's Rory, long-time listener, first-time caller, hoping to, uh, to get to Buffalo status. I have some questions for Steve on his commentary masterclass, in inverted commas. Uh, the first one is, when he's commentating, who is he talking to? Uh, what do they know about football? Who do they want to win? What level is he pitching it at? Who is Steve's interlocutor when he's, when he's guiding us through a German game or or some sort of French masterpiece. Uh, that's my first question. I have others. Interlocutor is uh, the word of the day. I'd like to see you all use it in three different circumstances uh, before the end of the day so that it's very much uh, ingrained into your lexicon. Um, Steve, Rory Smith, who is uh, a first-time emailer, uh, would uh, like to know the answer to those questions, and we'll have more questions from other listeners in a moment. It's an excellent Question. Isn't it though? It's funny. From, it's almost like we're setting up from young Rory Smith. He's the kind of person who sounds like he might have called into a radio phone in as a in the teenager mid-90s about Savo Milosevic. Question about Savo Milosevic. <laughs> uh, I think generally in broadcasting, you're sort of told or advised to to communicate as though you're communicating directly with with one person. I think when it comes to football commentary, you've got to think a little bit about how divisive your audience might be. There will be those who are fans of the two clubs involved so you don't want to do anything that might infuriate them you don't want to patronize them you don't want to deal with information that perhaps is already pretty much second nature to them so therefore you are repeating things that they would know for themselves but then you also have to consider that there will be the more casual viewer somebody with a passing interest in the game who might not have such a depth of knowledge about what's going on so you have to sort of cater for them as well so it's you're attempting to find a middle ground between the fact that you will have very, very knowledgeable viewers or listeners, but you will also have the more casual observer who will need to be a little bit more informed about what's going on. Yeah, I remember working with Martin Tyler. He says to me virtually every time we work together, we're just we're just two lads watching and talking about a football match. And yes, it, it is kind of like that, but there is a bit more to it than that. I think it is the informing people as a commentator what is actually happening and who has scored and who's on the ball and all the, the players themselves. But working with a co-commentator, again, you've got to work as a team, haven't you? But that's yeah. what you're trying to do. That's interesting. Is I don't tend to think about the fans of the two clubs. I just tend to think about the game. And I feel I have to say, it's different commenting to co-commenting. Our roles are different, but we're working together. I don't tend to think too much about, I know my stuff and hopefully anybody who watches or listens to what I'm doing knows that I've done my homework on their team. I'll never go in lightly about any team that I'm, I'm covering. But I do generally tend to think of the audience as football fans and non-football fans and try and please as many of them as you can. You can't please everybody, but if you can do maybe 80% of, of who's watching, I think that's the challenge. Yeah, not pleasing everybody is a particular thing of a commentator. That, that They tend to be quite divisive because it is the voice you are hearing the most. And so people have their likes and dislikes uh, with commentators. Paul Dixon uh, got in touch on Twitter after we asked you to, to get in touch with us. Um, these are his preferences on what he'd like his commentator to be. Don't talk when there's nothing to say. Don't overquote stats that may be of historical quirky interest, but no more. Haven't won on a Tuesday since 1924, he says as an example. Don't get too excited unless you're Peter Drury, who has the requisite vocabulary. Do employ gentle sardonic humour, John Champion, he says in brackets. Calm, rational, objective analysis, Martin Tyler, he says in brackets. And bring the best out of your co-commentator by asking him about things you spot and he or she has not mentioned. Well, that's what I was going to think of saying to Steve. Is it the people that you're working with now? It's it's not just sometimes you just work on your own. Yep. Do you prefer to work with a co-commentator? Very much. Or so. if you do work with a co, do you have to maybe tailor how you commentate in in kind of understanding what your co-commentator, how much they might know or not know? Do you have to maybe adapt a little bit 
in how you work together as a team. Yeah, very much. Uh, Paul, by the way, I, I pretty much agree with everything he says there. Yeah. I think that those has he been all... reading my co-commentary master plan? I think he he's has. Got, he's got those from. Yeah. yeah. It depends what sort of game you're doing, but obviously if, you're, if you are commentating on a game, having a co-commentator is overwhelmingly the best situation to be in. It's somebody to bounce off. It's uh, an alternative opinion. It's a different voice. You know, you don't want to necessarily feel like this is a monologue. Mm. You you want a bit of variety. It helps with the conversation. It helps with the engagement. It helps hopefully bring out a little bit of the, the humour, uh, if if there is any humour to be drawn out of the situation. And it, it helps you bounce off another person. It's a, it's a second pair of eyes on contentious issues or maybe difficult situations to interpret, you know, final touch on a mm-hmm. goal-bound shot, you know, the kind of things that maybe you need two or three different replays to be entirely clear on. So a second pair of eyes on those and you're getting some guidance as well, perhaps from the director too. You know, that all helps. When it comes to doing Match of the Day, for example, where that is edited down quite tightly, being on your own isn't such a bad thing because actually you've got to work towards starting and finishing things in a pretty concise fashion to help the way that that's all put together as a, as a, as a jigsaw. So actually having a co-commentator in those situations mm. wouldn't be so ideal. Obviously a co-commentator is there because they played the game, so they encouraged to have a strong opinion. Are you encouraged to have an opinion or are you just describing what is happening? Again, I think that is that depends on whether or not you've got a co-commentator. Yeah. You know, for, for example, as as you well know, Chinch, you know that the, the commentator will call the action as it happens. The summariser, the co-commentator, will come in more often than not on replays to offer their insight and their expertise as to you know my job is to describe what's happened. Your role is the why. Yeah. But obviously, if you're doing the game on your own, then you have to fulfil both responsibilities so I would say I wouldn't be as forthright in my opinion as you could be because I've not got the playing career to back that up however you do have to obviously offer some opinion to to dovetail against the the what and the why well Jamie Parkins on Twitter says he gets frustrated by people who tell us what we can already see which is the kind of cardinal sin of something that you've been saying all along Chinch particularly in your excellent guide uh, for for co-commentators which all of us will stand to make many thousands of pounds from in the future Uh, (laughs) tell us what we can't see says Jamie Uh, there's a lot to learn from uh, Test Match Special, which um, if you're a cricket fan, particularly in the UK, you will uh, understand that that is the famous old BBC commentary uh, of cricket, where ex-players add insight that no viewer can appreciate or understand. He wants more experts by position as well. Tell me, as an ex-winger, why Sterling is playing so well, for example. And this from Sean Taylor on email. Great commentary is an inexact science, but it is easier to define what doesn't constitute good commentary. Personally, I don't want to know whether a commentator thinks something was good or bad, be that skill tactics, decision-making, etc. They are not qualified to proffer such an opinion. That is what analysts and pundits are for. And he says, I count co-coms like Chinch in this bracket, which Mm. is helpful because that is your whole job. I guess the skill of a commentator is to accurately describe the action and portray the atmosphere slash tension in as entertaining a way as possible or just be John Motson, uh, says Sean. What I do find is with the co-commentators and the, maybe the standard of them because guys coming out of the game have probably had more education in terms of tactics than, than I did maybe 25 years ago is that <clears throat> the commentators I work with have such a brilliant understanding of the game as well as being able to describe the game. I like working with a commentator that you can talk about tactics and because they're seeing in essence what we're seeing. Okay, you've not played the game but you understand the game just as well. I've not worked with a commentator that I feel is just describing the action. 
because obviously you get to know them off air as well and you do understand that they, they understand the game just as well as a former player. So that's why it's great. You can then very much work as a team. That's the thing about opinion. You can then bounce ideas off and you, you say, well, I think maybe this is a better way of play. I don't think there's anything wrong with that with a commentator because your experience and your knowledge of the game I think you're fully justified in saying something like that. I don't feel it's it's not your area and it's only the area of the analyst to say, again, and have an opinion on whether a formation or a player or a tactic is working well. A commentator, because of they, their increased knowledge and experience, I think they're in a very strong position to be able to do that as well. And it doesn't matter if you disagree ever so slightly yeah, as well because yeah. that can help with the, the conversation, it can help with the flow and it can help draw out the critical bits of information. If you're just agreeing and nodding along with each other the whole time, then then that I don't think necessarily... It's, I, I certainly feel there's some of the best commentary experiences I've had with a co-commentator have been when we've had a little bit of friction and there's been a point of difference and that's probably improve both of us. And it's also important, even if you get on really well, there might be a challenge or a kind of a contentious um, incident. Yeah. Where you, you're, you, you are, your job is there to say, have a look at this again. Are you sure you, this yeah. is what you think? And that is, that is your job as well because your friends are like, oh, I don't want to kind of put him in a position or, or I'm not going to steer clear of that. That's what we have to do. And you have to put those co-commentators in a position to, to have an opinion on something that everyone at home is talking about. We have another contribution from a listener called R. Smith. Oh, Hiya, it's me again, Rory. My second question is, how much does the immediate feedback and genuine, generally negative timber of social media influence how Steve commentates and how commentators act and kind of approach their craft? So I know for, for print journalists, the, the dinosaurs of the, the football media industrial complex, uh, it, it's a massive factor kind of thinking that you get this immediate feedback and any, any kind of negativity, any 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 mistake is seized upon straight away. Um, is that the same for commentators? Because it's so difficult. The thing that's always struck me about commentary is how difficult it is to, to call things as they happen, when often you, you kind of can't see what's happening immediately and you need, you need those few beats to, to interpret what you've just seen. Uh, so how much does the, the fact that social media can tell you exactly how inept you are uh, affect how you do your job? That from Mr R Smith of South Manchester. Uh, that is something that so far I've not had to deal a great deal with. That is not because I don't get things wrong, because I do. Uh, it's because I don't have very many people following, following me on Twitter. So I don't necessarily have to deal with that side of things. But Follow I, him at Stephen Wyeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, Please do. But I have spoken with colleagues who do have to deal with this sort of thing on a fairly regular basis. And the, the primary accusation that is levelled at them is one of bias, which is something that we have discussed on the podcast as a topic in its entirety in the past, that their interpretation of something, something that they called as they saw it, was somehow biased one way or another. That you clearly support Team Y yeah. and hate Team X. And, and that's simply not the case. I think more of that, that's one, accusations of bias, which is simply just not true. The other one that you get an awful lot is pronunciation. Of, of players' names, which is one of those things. Maybe you know, maybe we can get into it a little bit a little bit later. But it is one of those things that's sort of again fraught with differences of opinion. I'm I'm happy to do a whole podcast about pronunciation yeah. because it is one of my Bugbears, most yeah. favourite yeah. subjects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just very very briefly on that then. Clive Tilsley did a really interesting piece during the World Cup in 2014, explaining why he was calling James Rodriguez James Rodriguez. Now, it was an extreme point to take because I think most people would accept that, you know, we understand the 
pronunciation of the the Spanish version of the name and that it didn't necessarily need anglicization but it, effectively the point that Clive was making is we are commentators we're not linguists and very often when you are commentating on a game there might be players from six seven even more nationalities involved in those games so it's trying to strike the right balance between what is familiar to the English ears because generally you are commentating for an English speaking audience and what is as close to close as possible to being accurate and you get as much guidance as you possibly can to to get that absolutely spot on but I think some people you'd, you'd often get you know just to use the example you know you might you might hear from a Bulgarian speaker about the way you are pronouncing a Bulgarian name well yes you have to accept that from their point of view they they are right and you are wrong but there also perhaps needs to be an understanding that you are dealing with perhaps six or seven different languages so therefore whilst you're taking your criticism is picking out one in isolation the expectation that a commentator is also linguistically perfect in all of those different languages is a little bit unreasonable yeah, I think with social media I've never done social media I never will do social media the main reason is I'm too fragile seriously I'm too precious that if I was I was on Twitter and there was instant reaction and people were critical which they would tend to be because that's what people tend to be is fairly negative you get a decision wrong or, or see something in the wrong way it would destroy me it would uh, yeah. destroy me so yeah. I, I simply and there's a lot of people in kind of broadcasting who've I've advertised the fact they're doing games whether it be presenters or commentators and everything else and yeah, I can understand that let people know where you're going to be but then the feedback because you, you, you're just never going to win you, you can't as I said before you can't think about pleasing everybody so you've just got to do the very best job that you can do yes there will be people that will say they really enjoy what you've done and yes you were spot on but they're probably not going to go on Twitter and say you're great just on should they have an opinion Sean Logue at Villaman at 1988 says, I don't like commentators who are too opinionated. I always feel that's the analyst's role. I also dislike ones who aren't excited and sound like they hate football and would rather be anywhere else. He says, he says, Alan Green on Five Live ticks both boxes. Generally, any commentator, he says, uh, that isn't Barry Davis, um, they'll be... There could be a whole podcast in how much we love Barry Davis. That's not for today. I, I imagine Steve will bring him up shortly. And Neil Sinnott, who is a regular correspondent. Thank you, Neil, for getting in touch. It is a tough question. Some of my favourite bits of commentary are from commentators giving their opinion away from the action uh, to provide a contrast to what we just heard from Sean. For example, Jonathan Pierce. Um, but some of my worst are of them giving their opinion. Um, also, can commentators stop scripting their lines? Um, which is a note from Neil. So um, we've spoken about the, the, the whole opinion and uh, opining uh, thing, but just, just very quickly on scripting lines, Steve. Yeah, I don't, Yes, no, never? Um, I, no, I'd never say never, um, and I don't th- but I don't think it's as prevalent as maybe people think. There's an awful lot of very, very good commentators who can deliver off the cuff a brilliant and pithy five-second line, which may sound as though it was rehearsed, but wasn't. Yes, you do very often, though, think and make notes of what you might deliver, you know, depending on how the circumstances unfold. And remember, an awful lot of the time, yes, off-the-cuff commentary is always to be applauded, but a lot of the time, especially at the beginning of a game, what you have to deliver does need to be scripted because it needs to hit certain time junctions for, for the build-up. And again, at half-time and full-time, you've very often got a very definitive amount of time that you've got to do your rap before you've got to hit a hard count out. So sometimes, yes, a little bit of scripting 
helps you get it right because you've only got one opportunity to get it correct. I suppose it's also trying to make that scripting sound as if it's coming out completely off the cuff. But we're asked to do close-ups looking at players before games. And what I've started to do now is rather than write sentences, is just write words and yeah. then trust myself to work around the words that I've written down. There may be three points you want to make about a player. So rather than write out three sentences, which sound like you're reading out three sentences, is actually put just words that are in those sentences and trust yourself to yeah, deliver. Yeah. The, 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 the beauty or the ability to uh, read something when it doesn't sound red is one yes. of, the, I think, particularly at live football games, when you're trying to give the impression of um, spontaneity is, is, is a skill well learned by all those who do it. Well, just to give you a, a bit of insight on match of the day, for example, more often than not, for uh, the so you know Gary Lineker will throw to the commentator oh, name drop and more Gary often Lineker, than not listen to him you've got his mate Gary yeah, Lineker you've got I'm just ignoring you you've Links. got 30 you've got a, you've got to do a 30 second and it's a hard 30 second preview that includes team news for both teams you've pretty much got to script that because it's got to be it's got to be completely spot on I, I think script what, it what, what Neil is referring yeah, yeah, to I, is yeah. the, the old John Motson f- famous one where David Beckham scored the penalty against Argentina in the 2002 World Cup because it yep. was during lunchtime because of the time difference and it was have you got your plates ready you can smash them now when he, when he scored the goal that those are moments where they jar yeah. a little and but, Motti decided to try and coin a line that suited the moment and would be remembered it did both whether it was any good or not is another but also discussion. that gives you some control as well because a commentary you're reacting to everything that happens you can't clearly script a no. football match so that in a way having that little bit of script in, in the build up to a, to, a, to a kickoff you're in control of that so you can put more thought into that because it's not something that's going to happen and you have to react instantly to it which is what the game is all about I'm keeping notes as I go along yeah. you know primarily you know the, the key things the goals red cards for example you know if you get an opportunity to look down you'll scribble a note but I will as the game is drawing towards its conclusion if there is you know a quiet few seconds I might give myself a little bit of a guide as as to the kind of line that you might want to deliver at full time if if things pan out as they look like they're going to because I did a, a game recently where um, it was West Bromwich Albion against Aston Villa where Jay Rodriguez scored a, a handball equaliser in the 93rd minute right and I don't know why I said it or whether you probably feel it works. I said, forget the hand of God. This is the hand of J-Rod. And to me, it sounds <laughs> like it's something it's that you've written down because that sounds yeah. so, wait a minute, that's a bit too right. How can you... But again, it's one of those it's things that... that you're really brilliant. Well, I what, did, what did you say I was? I said, I did, yeah? don't do your hand gesture like you want me to stop because you oh. don't want me to stop. It's because you're brilliant. Well, it's it's an again. example of why you are the cut above all the, those mediocre... Non-rhyming. Yes, but I, I did it just just to be in a way just to be funny. But again, it wasn't something I've written or thought about the game or what can happen in the game. And sometimes you do do that because the context of a game, as you go into it, can say, well, if that were to happen, what can I say about that or something yeah. clever? So you do try at times. But that was something that I just thought, well, it felt right to me. So you just kind of, but it's not really doesn't need to be said but it's something just just in the in the heat of the moment that came out and I thought well, that sounds quite good to me scripting also means preconceptions uh, on a slightly different scale and Steve and I have spoken before about how frustrated we get about yeah. uh, commentators seeming to come into the game with a narrative and then making everything yes, fit that narrative yes, as opposed dangerous. to just seeing the game as it is uh, Joe Buckle sent a lovely email thank you Joe lots of points made but uh, one of them was this he gets uh, frustrated about inconsistencies based on the perceptions of a team or a certain player 
going into a game. So, for example, Diego Costa would frequently dive stamp, elbow, or commit yellow or red card offences, to which commentators would say, well, if you take that edge away from him, you wouldn't have the same player. Or he plays with his heart, does Diego Costa. Whereas if another player was to behave the same way, they'd rightfully be condemned for thuggish behaviour. So it's having those preconceptions and making what they see conform to those preconceptions. Yeah, you can't ignore the narrative. One thing, one complaint I have had off people in the past, and, and this comes from doing perhaps an awful lot of European domestic league football for BT Sport. So being aware maybe of players who've been linked with moves to the Premier League. And if you mention that within the context of your commentary, you often would get a criticism for, well, you're trying to destabilise the player. Why, why is this even relevant? Well, if a centre-forward playing in the Bundesliga who's been linked with Chelsea smashes in a hat-trick, yes. you can't pretend that that isn't part of the story of the match. Mm. But So you do have to be aware of the stories around the game. But like all aspects of preparing for a commentary, you should only use them if and when they become relevant. It's like saying the first 10 minutes of a game, if a team is disjointed, not passing the ball well, don't think that that is going to continue and that is something yeah. that you have to... Because if things change, you've got to be able to see and mention that yeah. they've changed. And they did this for 10 minutes, but this is now improving. Rather than just continue along a line that you've set out in the first 10 minutes and just continue to, to bang on about it when it might well not be true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But you've, you've got to take... Into, if, they're on the, if they're on a sort of multiple game run of poor form, they've got injuries coming into the match, then obviously if things are going badly in the first 10 minutes, then that is relevant. Mm -hmm. But just don't continue to feel as though the 10 minutes live in isolation when, you know, yeah, 60, yeah. 70 minutes into the game, things have stabilised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another one of those uh, comes under this category from Alex D at Derbs01 on Twitter. Commentators who don't understand shot conversion stats and say it should have been 5 or 6 nil, which is a bit of a cliche. No one ever says of a genuine actual 6 nil game, well, it could have been 2 nil. So these are, there is a certain inconsistency yeah. of those. Yeah, you true. go with a bit yes, of a cliche and you think, yes. well, yeah, everybody okay. says it could have been 5 or 6 nil. That's something that I'll trot out again. When in fact, really, uh, that's just a game of football. If every mm. chance had gone in, yeah. in any game of football, it would have been 5 or 6 nil. And in, in terms of closed-mindedness, there is the uh, opportunity to be open-minded and embrace technology certainly uh, a lot more now. And, to, and you see it. The only time I mention this, you see it um, on American sports coverage. You see the play-by-play -play guy and the colour guy being particularly embracing of the technology that is available to them in the modern game. Uh, Tom Reutemann, at Slightly Crunchy, says, I would be open to graphics and then co-commentator explanation of formation and tactics after kickoff, especially if different than predicted. Chinch is a decent summariser, said Tom, who adds to the commentary rather than adds banal white noise. So he's got he's got low levels for you to overcome there, Chinch, but you have smashed through. I would say that's uh, high praise, levels. but that's fairly low praise. Isn't it? But oh, technology again, Steve, yeah. is something and, and that I'm a big commentary believer. on, so that it embraces that. And making it all about the game that's in front of us, again, with stats and, and history and all that. Yes, there's, there's maybe a, a, a time and a place for that and it might be relevant but the game don't get away from the game in front of us how can we best explain what is happening in front of us and sometimes with the technologies available you can really explain brilliant with torch beams and arrows in in commentary while people are watching and that's the challenge again for a commentary team yeah. if those new technologies come in are we able to embrace them and think about them and use them in the right way and that's very important then when you have to work as a team because if you're describing something and I'm not saying anything I could be thinking about well how would we show about the fullback getting forward how would we best illustrate that on a graphic or on a heat map or a touch map that's what I feel the future is because it's explaining and informing and entertaining people as a game goes on yes they can see a fullback getting forward but and we might mention it in commentary but can we visually I think if you visually show something it has that much more impact and that's the challenge for a commentary team is to say can we actually incorporate 
the graphics and all these different ways of, of, of using technology to, to even better effect. Coming up in a moment, we're going to finish um, our conversation uh, with Sean Dealing's Q&A, a little questionnaire to Steve. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to finish off uh, on that in just a moment. But just to, to round off some of the other uh, contributions uh, from Twitter, the first one is uh, from Seamus Hart, and, and this is uh, for both of you really, but firstly, Steve, uh, there's a new trend in the last few years where the commentators will ignore the actual game for minutes at a time. It might be slightly <laughs> exaggerating it. Talk about the narrative surrounding one of the clubs or one of the players a minute on where where should Kane go next he gives us an example as if it was some preview podcast well there are good enough podcasts without commentators stealing our thunder but generally speaking to have more of a conversation is that is that a modern thing because you ignore what's happening at your peril you won't necessarily see it apart from during a break and play yeah. radio commentary but obviously if there's a, if there's a boring spell going on in television commentary you can let the game go on and have a, co- a conversation the point that Seamus makes is actually has got as much to do with the production and direction and coverage of live football as it has to do with the commentary because something that Chinch and I have to work with is that whilst you might be in the ground and aware of what's going on completely around you you also have to be aware that what people watching at home can see is what's on the screen mm. so you can't be talking about the game if what is being shown at that moment is a shot of the crowd maybe a manager on the touchline or maybe to use the example of Harry Kane a, a close-up of Harry Kane who may be on this wonderful goal scoring run and is once again being linked with the great and good of European football so yes you, you have to tell the story of the pictures you can't ignore the pictures because of something else that might be going on because then you're alienating an audience by talking about something they can't see but and but a commentary has moved on from you know 20 or 30 years ago there is much more access to the the issues the stories the subjects that surround the match and that has to be part of or you have to have an awareness of that to take into your commentary you can't ignore outside influences for the duration of the 90 minutes that would that would seem like you would detach from reality we can also drive the coverage as well because I've got more confident recently and say there is a point to make about Harry Kane or a coach I'll ask the director can you give me a shot of Harry yeah. Kane so then you actually say right we're going to get the cameras on him because what tends to happen is I'll talk about somebody and the cameras will then close in on him but we work that in reverse and say well yeah it's a bit of a lull yeah. in the game there's a good point I want to make about Harry Kane so can you give me a shot Harry as soon as it comes on you can have your say or I can have my say so we're kind of driving and that's I, I do feel it's a big part of commentary as well is actually driving the coverage and not just leaving it to the directors to give us whatever pictures they are brilliant at it don't get me wrong and they do understand the flow of a game but making points about players or coaches that's maybe relevant to the game in yeah. front of us it's very important that the, we drive that that is yeah. a luxury though isn't it Steve yeah. from, from your point of it view it is a luxury but it's a, it is a very much live television live televised football is a team effort you work together not just with your co-commentator but with the director with the producer with the cameramen around the ground uh, with all of those people involved in the output to, to give the best possible coverage. And if you can build up a great relationship with your director, that you can work together to, to deliver that kind of content, then, then surely that's a good thing. Well, that's what we started to change at Sky. As I say, I insist on getting all the graphics, the stats guys, the directors, producers, commentators, everybody who's going to work, we have a production meeting before a game. So everybody knows we're all on the same page of what we think might yeah. happen, but there's no surprises. And everyone feels included because you're right, without them, we can't. We're, it's the voices aren't, aren't the key thing. The pictures aren't the key. It's everybody working together, and I'm really keen that everyone is feels part of 
a broadcast and, and plays their part in that. And having covered football from countries all over Europe, I can assure you that if you're talking about English football, the direction and production of football in this country is phenomenal. It is. So yeah, you, it you're is. not missing anything. No. If you think there's something going on in the game, I can hear a noise, there's something going on. The people responsible for bringing you the pitches at home are phenomenally good yeah. at their job. Yeah. It, the, the chances of you missing something of key importance to the game are very, very close to zero. Uh, talking of directors and the, sh- the choice of shot uh, of the, the picture that you're seeing, Jack Ford uh, says on Twitter, why are commentators made to say nobody wants to see this about things that we all want to see? Fights, pitch invasions, general handbags and the like. Similarly, why do commentators apologise for someone else swearing in the crowd? Does anyone at home actually care a jot about that? And in response to that, uh, Andrew Sparrow said, yes, a thousand times this. We absolutely do want to see fights, streakers, pitch invasions, etc. And that sanctimonious, sorry for any bad language, is childish in the extreme. It's all about Ofcom, isn't it? We have yeah. to, as yes, broadcasters, we, we, we have to. There was <laughs> a terrible one in a, a game I did recently that it was the, the worst I've heard for a long time. And of course, you're going to apologise for it. And as broadcasters, yes, we're not doing it. The commentators aren't saying these things. But pitch, that's the trouble with these, with these microphones, pitch that they're so sharp in picking up players' language, fans' language, that of course we have to apologise because people do get offended. There, there might be something from like a natural history programme that's shown on the BBC and that there's maybe something, you know, a little bit unsavoury occurs and it may be the death of a cute animal in a, in a you know, widely watched BBC documentary and the BBC will receive about 250 complaints about that. Most people kind of accept it's part and parcel and this is a program that's been watched by yeah. the circle of, it's been watched by millions of people but they have to they have to be conscious of the 250 people that might be offended yeah. and that is true my, of it, live tv sport it's my twitter policy in a nutshell yeah but it, the, the fight in rugby they tend to when it kicks off in rugby they tend to stick with the, the shot yeah. of the fight but in foot in yeah we're a bit kind of or if somebody runs you, onto the pitch, we, we very actively yes, stay away from the pitch. Don't want to, the same. Yeah, but, but all yeah. Fight, fights between players are generally shown. Yeah, and, and you, you can't have this single, so you can't have this sanctimonious. Well, that footballer is a role model. They shouldn't be diving. They shouldn't be spitting. They shouldn't be elbowing their opponent. But then also say that broadcasters should continue to show streakers fights and <laughs> allow bad language to be broadcast yeah, yeah. on air without any yeah. sort of censoring it. Finally, on a lighter note, Jack Spedding loves this this part of it. Commentators who try to be funny make a joke, and then the common co-commentator is next to them only to be greeted by a deafening silence always makes uh, Jack Spedding cringe he must have met Andy Hinchcliffe that's all I'll say about that um, the, so, the TV yeah, tumbleweed you do, you do, you do <laughs> love TV you tumbleweed you do get co-commentators who stitch up merchants yes, a bit the, like that the amount of times I threw to Andy Hinchcliffe and he just gave me a shrugged shoulder that's the, that's the one isn't it when yeah. we turn to look so, at each other and going, I just shrug my shoulder that's clearly the, what you can't see but I love on, it this I was on radio that. where he had to fill the air as well <laughs> so so finally then this little questionnaire uh, which comes from Sean Dealing on an email to seppismenu at gmail.com and it is um to Stephen because it says hi Stephen and others this sounds like it could be a Stephen centric episode so here are my <laughs> questions about commentary nice and short answers if you don't mind I'll Steve. go for it okay um, questions about commentary says how far ahead do you find out about your matches uh, you generally know by the middle of a month what your schedule is for the following month next question does your approach to the commentary change for match of the day which might be a 10 minute edit uh, and a live game the difference between the two yeah it does ever so slightly you always approach it in the, the same way in terms of you know you are commentating live for 90 minutes the thing you need to be aware of for match of the day or for any uh, game that's going to be edited before it's shown is that they are going to be stitching bits of that match together so they need to be able to flow together so you need to give the people who are editing the game plenty of out points and in points so that 
so that they can they can flow in the and the story it all makes sense when it comes together. Does live or highlights impact the way you prep? No, we pretty much always prep in exactly the same way. How different is it depending on whether you have a co-commentator or not? Uh, that is different from the point of view of how you sort of mentally prepare yourself for the game. If you haven't got a co-commentator, you might have to have a little bit more information up your sleeve because you've got to do a lot of that tactical stuff. You've got to talk over the replays. You've got to maybe offer a greater degree of analysis, whereas if you've got a co-commentator, that is chiefly their responsibility so you can focus on the what is happening whilst they tell you about the why. How difficult is it to commentate off-tube or using televisual pictures? Uh, um, and do you think the audience should know or care if you are there or not? I don't think the audience should know. They certainly shouldn't care. I don't think anybody ever pretends that they're on site, on location, if they are not. It is more difficult commentating off-tube from the point of view of if you're in a stadium, you can see what's happening. You've got a full view of the pitch. Identifying players is a, is a great deal easier in that environment. Off-tube, you are dealing with, generally you're talking about overseas football, you are dealing with exclusively what the on-location director in that country is showing you and no more. Uh, a few slashes in the last three questions. <laughs> best match slash goal slash player that you've commentated on? Uh, best goal I've commentated on, Ronaldo for Manchester United against Porto in the Champions League ah. a few years ago when he smashed it in from about 35 yards the out. The one that afterwards in the mix zone, he told us, I'm going to go straight back to the hotel and watch that goal again. Yeah. Well, if it was good enough for Ronaldo, it was yeah. good enough for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, any team slash player slash event slash stadium you haven't commentated on or at but really want to? Uh, Westfalen Stadion in Dortmund would be the top probably of my bucket list in that regard. I've not been there. I'd, I'd love to. Stephen, we should do it. Yeah, let's, Me well, and let's go. Let's, let's go. Let's oh, set a game up for us. You two always going together to places. <laughs> and any other sports that you'd like to have a go at? If you're listening, NBC, <laughs> and you need an ice hockey commentator, I am he your man. He will wear his Rangers I, top. Well, no, I won't know. I'll have to no, be impartial, so I won't wear my Rangers. Everything that we've said yeah, is no, I, ice, ice hockey would be the one. I've done cricket. I really enjoy doing cricket, but ice hockey would and be the one. And if you're listening, NBC, and you want someone to voice the camel racing, <laughs> we have the man for you. If you're listening, NBC, and you want a very, very good televisual presenter, get in touch with Steve. Um, uh, and this final question comes in from a caller. And one more, which I think should probably make me a buffalo, to be honest. bit surprised I've not been given that status already. Uh, Conor McNamara of the BBC famously has a television and radio level of Irishness, which is not very Irish, and an actual level of Irishness, which is extraordinarily Irish. Uh, my question to Steve is, how Irish are you? No, it's not really. Is has he always talked like a commentator? Has he always had that tone of voice that suggests that he is adjudicating a particularly narrow and therefore completely irrelevant, as previously discussed, offside call? Well, the answer to the first part of the question is one-eighth Irish. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> everybody's an eighth Irish. And no, I don't think I've always had a, a, a commentator's voice. Do I, do I talk? I, I, you I were born with a commentator's voice. Yeah, uh, some of but us are I do, lucky enough. I do have, I, I do have a quite a, a low voice for a commentator. I have a sort of generally grumpy demeanour, so I do have to kind of raise my voice and my enthusiasm levels for uh, for the kickoff. I felt I've had to lower because I get, get tend to get too excited about most things and tend to go a bit high pitched like Joe Pasquale so I've had to <laughs> lower my, my voice. One of the reasons I'm not a commentator <laughs> is because I start high and I just go and high. Con <laughs> Connor isn't really that Irish. I don't know where Rory's got the... Uh, but I, Connor off air is... Is he more Irish than he, he is on air? He is unfathomably Irish. He doesn't say turty, though, does he? Oh, yes, he does. He off, does not say Off curty. air, he does. You need to pay more attention. Um, and we finish, before we head to, to our soccer story, uh, with this from Jimmy Armchair, who basically can have these two sentences and you can ignore everything 
that has come thus far. Jimmy says, For me, commentary is like a film score. It sets the mood and heightens the emotions at appropriate times. I don't really hear the melody, i.e. individual comments. I respond to the overall feel, the volume, the pitch, and the human emotion conveyed. Jimmy, you nailed it. <laughs> Get back to your armchair. And there was, there was Hugh's scripted commentary line. Jimmy <laughs> nailed it. Um, but it, it's, it's absolutely true. Absolute, and, that is, that is, that is so good. That. The emotional I really like connection that. is particularly important because you identify moments, particularly if it's your team or a big moment that you've shared with a lot of people. If you identify that moment through the commentary, which often you will because that is the film score of your big moment. If the commentator nails it at that moment then you will be forever remembered, and rightly so. We've spoken about Barry Davis before. He probably, in our lifetimes, has done it more than anybody else that I can think of. That's why it's so important as well to actually, as a, as a commentary team, to feel the game because the noise of the crowd as well and the emotions of the game itself can carry you along. So sometimes less is more. Sometimes you don't need to say anything because everything is being said for you. The pictures and the sound that's coming off the game itself. Yeah, so it was our first comment, wasn't you wanna, it? You want to play along with much. that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Don't try and dominate what is absolutely brilliantly happening in front of you. And I just wanted to finish with one thing, that, that life as a commentator, both preparing for and doing commentaries, the closest real-life situation I can compare it to is constantly revising for and sitting exams. Your prep is your revision. The match is the exam. Mm. You will only ever use 20% of your prep during the game. And if somebody asks you to do it all again the following day, <laughs> we've lost the papers. You've got to sit the, sit the exam again. We've lost the tape of the match. You've got to commentate on it, on it again. The exact same emotions would go through your mind. Well, I've forgotten all of that now. <laughs> How nervous do you get before you do, you... do you appreciate the audience you might have? Do you ever think about that? Uh, a little, a little bit nervous, enough to keep you sort of on your toes. Yeah, yeah. But, but not kind adrenaline. of. I can't yeah, do this. Yeah, this the, 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 the required amount of adrenaline. No, no, no. But by the time you've climbed up to the top of the gantry, <laughs> it's a bit too late to pull out. <laughs> and, and and bearing in mind, this is like the third conclusive point. Um, the bearing in mind the amount of words that we have spilled on this subject and the amount that the art is based on words, it's like a good Miles Davis solo. Less is more. Yes. Shut up yes. is the thing that I most often shout at the television, particularly in big moments when a football commentator is frothing at the mouth all over it. The pictures, the moment, the emotional engagement. If you can't make it better, yep. don't try. This is what we're trying to say to a lot of the younger guys who feel, well, I'm being paid by the word. No, you're not. When there's <laughs> a fantastic goal being scored, there's nothing... You, the celebra- As I said, the celebrations, the noise of the crowd, what the players are doing, the benches are up. Those pictures are just gold. So actually, your job then is to say nothing. Which is ironic because this is a podcast of us waffling Yes, for Britain. Uh, before we go, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy tells the tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details removed during which we're allowed to shout shut up at least three times. This is the most recent story I have ever told. It was a game I was working on as a co-commentator. Oh yes, a skill that you had Newcastle. Now, I'm very fortunate in doing this job. you Clearly, at the game, maybe three or four hours. In in my case, I'm probably there six hours before the game, so I like to be nice and early, as you know, Hugh. Um, so we, we managed to get into the bowels of the club. We get into the press room. And I was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours before this Newcastle game, and he was telling me a very interesting story about a recent awards dinner where I'm sure 50% 
of this podcast attended. <laughs> now, apparently it was later in the evening that ha- everyone had had a really lovely time. The beers had been flowing. Everyone's nice and relaxed. We clearly didn't win, which was a travesty. But apparently, by the end of the evening, there was a, a figure who, it, after the gin and tonics kicked in, <laughs> felt a little bit sluggish. And while the party was going on with everybody else, there was a figure slumped in the corner who clearly hadn't been able to keep pace with the occasion. Now, I don't want to mention the Irishman who told me this story, <laughs> but he said, oh, we're having a great time here. Where, where is he? Where? He was stump- in a little chair on his own. Couldn't, couldn't, Cushman might be talking about. <laughs> Hugh, you were with us all night, weren't you? I can't, can't imagine um, the unfathomable stage yes. <laughs> into, the, into the full Irish gin and tonics. Yeah. I'm probably the most accurate source. Yes. And I can guarantee you that of uh, the four gentlemen who went to the after show party, yes. uh, myself, Stephen Wyatt sat to my left, yeah. the uh, football correspondent for the BBC, John Murray, and the aforementioned Conor McNamara, there was one who was very much on the lower end of capability. I never mentioned who mentioned Conor McNamara. No, sorry, I that was never, my mistake. I never, my mistake. never tell you my sources. That was it my certainly mistake. wasn't well, it was Conor McNamara. So did, did this happen though? Did did the poor little lamb couldn't keep up with the uh, with how the evening was progressing? Was I'm it? Did he? I must admit, I can't remember. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Is it the change? Back. This is the story I was told. Is it Steve? Yes. Well, yes. I tried to drag him home about two hours before. <laughs> I, oh, no. I, I would, I would, def- I would defend my honour. Really? Is, is that why he couldn't remember? Because it was him. <laughs> he, he, he said the party was going on. He looked at him and he said the gin and tonics had kicked in. And it looked like someone had cut your strings and you were, you were slumped. You were slumped on a chair. You're gonna have to take it up with him because that's what he told me. I would. I mean, I would say that's bullshit. <laughs> I, 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 I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely baffled because I was, I was the instigator of um, the last round of gin and tonics for a start. Yes. So he was so, telling me the story. So he said he yeah, was, the beers were flowing, everything yeah. was fine. Once the gin and tonics kicked in, it took its toll. And it, yes, this he made it plain. London prices. So he was both broke and also broke. Uh, thank you, Andy, for your story. Thank you to all your unnamed sources, Conor McNamara. Uh, we leave you with the mind of how to get in touch, and we thank you for all those people who got in touch uh, with those suggestions and questions about the art of commentary at SetPieceMenu on Twitter, SetPieceMenu at gmail.com. Uh, you can also head to facebook.com forward slash SetPieceMenu. We're also very grateful for the contribution of one R. Smith, um, who I understand has just touched down um, from his sojourn in Madrid, having nearly missed the plane. Don't tell that story, apparently we're not supposed to. Uh, please do subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue finding room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do you have to go somewhere? Uh, why? Oh, it's four o'clock. Oh, is it? I need to go, yes. Right, I okay. need to go. Yeah. Really, quickly. Yeah. Go on then. <laughs>